0: Today we will finish up 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians 3. We'll be covering verses 12 through 18, so please turn with me there. Because some in the Corinthian church have been questioning Paul's credentials and authority as an apostle of Christ... He has been defending his calling and ministry from the outset of this letter. In a unique and powerful way, Paul has argued that the Corinthian believers themselves were what he called his letter of recommendation written by Christ, which then was more than enough to validate his apostolic credentials. And Paul directed their attention to what God had done in them as a whole, as a church, through the work of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, only God could have done any of this. The changes were that great. Were there still multiple issues among the believers in this church? Yes, there were. But it was obvious to all that while growth in the Lord was not Perfectly consistent, there was growth and there was understanding and a deepening dependence growing as well. He's also laid the foundation for them to continue in their growth, not with a list of do this and that, but by explaining how they must think now that they belong to Christ. Paul made crystal clear that the only confidence that Christians can have through Christ is only possible because the Christian sufficiency only comes from God, not from anything in themselves. He wrote in verses 5 and 6 of this chapter, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who's made us complete or sufficient Competent or sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So now in chapter 3 and following, Paul takes his readers to a place all Christians need to go. We cannot just wing it in our day to day life in Christ. We must get the bigger picture of what God has done and is doing in order to really help us see what our purpose is in this life. Now that we're saved, what comes next? What do we expect of life? What do we want? Are our dreams and concerns in this life consistent with what God says our purposes are? Or do we live like he's just our insurance policy and has no real authority or input into the way that we live? Do we really know him? Do we really want to know the God who loved us so much he sent his own son to save and redeem us from eternal condemnation? Do we really want to know him better? Paul helps his readers, and that means us too, so much here because he uses the biblical story to reveal more of who God is and who we are as his people. He continues in our passage this morning comparing Moses' encounters with God in the Old Covenant to the far more glorious and permanent work of Christ in the New Covenant, This gift to us is really quite remarkable. How can the almighty creator of the universe communicate to us in a way that we understand enough of him to see ourselves correctly so that we don't spend the rest of our lives cowering in fear of each sunrise or hating the thought that we do have to answer to the one who made us? Paul uses the Old Testament story of Moses and his veil to reveal our greatest need. And then he uses the same images to show us how magnificent God's solution for us is in Christ's Son. As we are overcome with gratefulness for His intervention, our resistance to His calling on us fades and we welcome him and we want to love and serve him so much that we really do begin to worship him all day long every day his purpose for us becomes our purpose as well if you are able would you please stand as i read 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 12 through 18 I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. First, we see subject of veiled glory in verses 12 through 15. The first word in verse 12 is since or therefore, and that connects this paragraph with the one before it. Paul is building on his explanation of the implications of Moses' veil. Now remember, Moses was called by God to lead the Israelites out of Egypt and also was appointed by God to be the mediator of the Old Covenant. And in this capacity, Moses represented God to Israel and Israel to God when God met His people at Mount Sinai, the place where, by God's initiative, the Old Covenant relationship was made. So Moses went up that mountain and into the awesome presence of God to receive the law from him while the people remained at a distance. And one feature of this awesome event concerned the effect it had on Moses himself. When he came down the mountain, his face was was glowing with radiant light. And this was due to his being in God's presence. The God of whom the psalmist writes in Psalm 104, verse 2, This God is covered with light as with a garment, and whom Moses had already encountered at a brightly burning bush. The Israelites were scared to death when they saw Moses' face. So Moses placed a veil over it and kept it there all the time he was in the camp of Israel unless he was preaching God's word to them or communicating with God. And when he went back up the mountain into God's presence, again he removed this veil. In other words, when God revealed himself to Moses, who was the mediator of the old covenant God was making with the Israelites, the effect of being in God's very presence was reflecting his glory which was seen as this radiant, glowing light. Glory came to be a way of speaking about God as he has graciously shown himself or revealed himself to human beings. It's a way of describing the weightiness of God, especially in his self-revelation to humans. Paul's point last week was that if Such a glory attended the giving of the law, which brought death because it pointed out the sin all people were enslaved to. Then, how much more glorious is the ministry of the Holy Spirit that brings righteousness? No one could be saved by the law because no one can keep it perfectly. And that's why Christ came in person to live as a man in human flesh. He kept the law and perfect righteousness as the God-man. He was the only acceptable sacrifice for the sin of man that deserves death and condemnation. He took that on himself, on the cross. And those who believe in him are then clothed in his righteousness and that's why the glory of christ's work and resurrection of the new covenant far surpasses the glory of the old covenant mediated by moses paul ended the last paragraph last week by telling us the new covenant is permanent so in verses 12 through 15 we read since we have such a hope why because the new covenant "...is permanent. We are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away." Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So there is nothing tentative, unsure, or changing about the new covenant gospel that we proclaim. No current circumstances change that fact. God has given us great hope because he has secured our future in Christ. Living for Him, even in a hostile world, does not affect your eternal hope in Him. So the question is do we see the boldness of Christian proclamation in contrast with Moses' veil? Whenever Moses spoke God's word, he did not cover his face so that the glory of God would shine unhindered. So why did he cover it? In verse 13, Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. What's in view here is the termination not just of Moses' ministry, but also the eventual Old Covenant itself. When Christ fulfills it completely and initiates the New Covenant as his sacrifice for the sin of those he came to save was accepted by the Father. Because the Old Covenant condemns sin, and thereby sinners, which means everyone it could not save by itself. So to put any hope in completely keeping the law and gaining salvation that way was completely misguided and futile. That's what many Jews did, misuse the law. Because they misused the law by believing they could work harder and keep it, They were blinded to its real purpose. Another reason why he covered his face with that veil comes from the context of where this whole account is written in the Old Testament, in Exodus 34. And there we know that the Israelites were unable to look at the glory reflected from Moses' face because their guilty consciences accused them. The next verse, verse 14, in our text makes this clear too. They had broken the covenant they had ratified, which made it impossible to look at the glory that represented God Himself. They were afraid that the reflected glory and brilliance might literally consume them. They knew that this God would tolerate no sin. But instead of repenting when their consciences showed them that they were guilty, the Israelites asked Moses to cover his face because they didn't want to see the radiance of his face. I hope you see the similarities to how many of us still try to deal with our sin. They chose to continue to live in sin and to harden their minds and hearts. In verse 14 we read, But their minds were hardened, which means they were made dull, blinded spiritually, not merely intellectually. They could not or would not see Christ because they misused the law, thinking that by keeping the law, they could gain eternal life. Were you paying attention to the hymns we just sang? The second one started off this way. Not what my hands have done, can save my guilty soul we sing this over and over and over again and using many different words and phrases the question is do we believe that do we recognize that we cannot save ourselves by obeying the law And in the rest of verses 14 through 15, we read this, For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. For Paul, the external veil that Moses wore symbolized the inner hardness of many of his fellow Jews whom he had been proclaiming Christ to especially on his missionary journeys nearly every Sabbath when he visited somewhere he went into where? a synagogue in order to share how Christ fulfilled the law this saddened him greatly you can feel the pathos in the words throughout this letter especially. Does this mean that the law and prophets, the Old Testament, Old Covenant, could have shown them more than it did? Or did this mean that the failure to see a future Savior was caused by something in them? How would you vote? Romans 3, verses 21 through 22, clearly says that the law and the prophets, which is kind of like shorthand for the whole Old Testament, bear witness to, quote, unquote, the good news that God has provided righteousness through faith in Christ. And Jesus, remember, marveled that the two disciples who were talking with him on the road to Emmaus after he was resurrected, what did he say to him? Why are you so slow of heart? And had not understood what the Old Testament said about him. Implying what? That the whole Old Testament pointed to Christ being the one who fulfilled the law. Yes, it was still shadowy, For Christians, this means that Christ and grace are there in the Old Testament if we have the spiritual faculty to enable us to see them with the Holy Spirit's enlightenment. It's how you must read the Old Testament. You must look for him there. So Paul's boldness in spreading the gospel of Christ is based on several things. How could he be so bold? Isn't that the question that we ask as we read Paul's letters? While we're reading those letters, most of us are saying, I could never do that. I could never say, thank you, God, for being shipwrecked and beat up and stoned and put in jail. Yes, you could. If God called you to do that, you could do it because he supplies the grace for what he calls us to do. But it's still bold, no matter how you put it. And this doesn't mean being crazy or acting in an ill-mannered way. It just means trusting Christ to share the truth when it's appropriate, especially And his boldness is based on its permanent nature first. We saw that. And it's also based on the burden that he carries for those fellow Jews who have hardened hearts. As we're going to see in chapter 4, all people who are hardened to the good news. Right now, this week before the election, are we burdened for the people that are so obviously hardened in their hearts? to even the fact that there is a God. It should break us. There should be tears every once in a while because there's so much at stake. But mostly he was burdened because of something that God did in his life, which was what? Save him. When he was an enemy and then sent him to other lost people that's the main reason based on the others he operated because he had no doubt what god had done for him do you see how this connects do we or do we still think we're pretty good we we got some merit before the lord he realized that God sent him to other lost people. And because of that, he gladly, gratefully, and boldly served. The veil, if it's still there on people, it's there because only through Christ is it taken away, which is what it says in verse 14. And only by looking at Christ will we reflect his glory we cannot manufacture this on our own just because we want to verses 16 through 18 but when one turns to the lord that word here refers to christ because only through christ is the veil taken away and look what verse 16 says But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is there, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit if there is such a thing as favorite verses in the Bible, and there are, this is one of mine. There is so much hope here. Notice the language of conversion that Paul uses in verse 16, that word turn, turning to Christ, which implies the repenting and believing in Christ that he writes about elsewhere. When they accept Christ the veil that has kept them from seeing him is removed by him. So they're saved. When God removes their sin as the result of the new covenant he's made with them. Verse 17 says now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. <clears throat> Don't get confused and miss the whole rest of the passage because you're stuck on these phrases. There is a hint at the trinity here, but the second clause explains the first. The Lord is Christ who takes away the veil. As we read in verse 14 and how verse 16 here reiterates Paul most certainly is addressing a segment of unbelievers here. Who Fellow Jewish contemporaries, As Moses approached God, so the Jew of Paul's day is invited to turn to Christ. If the Jew responds affirmatively to this invitation, the veil that covers his face or heart is removed. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's what? Freedom. To do anything you want, that's not what freedom means, even if 99.9% of America thinks so. Paul sees conversion as turning to the Spirit, recognizing the need for inner and transforming divine power rather than self-effort. The Lord gives freedom when the Spirit frees us from the condemning death-dealing effects of trying to find salvation through law-keeping. That's our freedom. We are free in Christ to serve, love, worship, obey Him. And if that's not how we think about the freedom we have in Christ, we need to change our definitions really quick. Because the more time goes on, the more of what's happening in our culture demands that the responses of Christians is exactly this. Who's going to explain what true freedom is if we don't? Paul sees conversion as turning to the Spirit, recognizing the need for inner and transforming divine power rather than self-effort. You know what? He relates Christian freedom here to the inner work of the Spirit. And he says that also in Romans chapter 8, verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. What from? From the law of sin and death. And here we come to verse 18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, this is a wonderful and powerful and enlightening verse, and it pretty much sums up everything that Paul has already emphasized. But not only is it a summary, this verse we need to park on. This verse tells us how we are to become more like Christ. And we need to run every great, creative, weird, strange, or sincere way book, method, through this grid to see if it's really something we should think about. So we need to think of it this way. What context is this passage in? Well, in a sense, we all go up to the mountain. We all go up, then, the mountain, Through Jesus' death for us, we may all have unrestricted access to the very presence of the God of glory, and that is an amazing privilege. Now, how can we say that? Well, notice the middle section of the verse. We all are being transformed. This is what God is doing in us, to us. Now, in this life, stick your name in there. You are now being transformed. And you look at yesterday and this morning and you go, boy, it sure didn't feel like it. It sure didn't seem like it. Well, let's put this into context. What are we doing? He says, we all... With unveiled face. Why? Why? Because Christ has removed it. Because you're trusting in Him and not yourself. Are beholding the glory of the Lord. Now here's where it gets (coughs) really interesting. Beholding, this word can either be generally translated as looking or reflecting. And look at your Bible. If you have a different translation from the English Standard Version, you'll notice that it reads a little differently. And other grammatical considerations make even more options possible about how to translate this. For example, the New American Standard says, Beholding as in a mirror. The Christian Standard Bible says, Looking as in a mirror. The King James and New King James says, Beholding as in a glass or mirror. And the New International Version, the older version, said, Reflect the the Lord's glory. The New Version says, Contemplate the Lord's glory, which is really weak, by the way. So what's the deal here? Well, the ESV stuck with the looking-beholding idea, while the others includes sort of a combination of both looking and reflecting. Notice that? Like looking in a mirror, which reflects the glory. You know what? Either sense fits well with what Paul's getting across and is consistent with biblical teaching throughout. But, you know, in other places... Paul has used words or phrases that have more than just one sense or meaning. And you know, some people have spent most of their adult lives voting for one or the other or trying to prove one or the other. That's not the only solution, folks. When he does this, many times he seems to be doing it on purpose in order to use the words ambiguity to convey both senses. If this is his intention here, which I think it is, we get a very significant, powerful, and even more enlightening picture of how we become more like Christ. How are we to become more like Christ? By reflecting his character and glory. And how can we do this? By looking constantly at him. And what does that look like in practice? If you were going to describe what ways in your life you look at him, you could make a list. But you know how it has to start? You can make any kind of list you want. But unless you are on your knees before him in general with a grateful heart, in worship, adoration, praise, acknowledging his authority in your life, gratefully, because he saved you eternally from condemnation, you can make the list and keep it, or try to, and it won't make that much difference. Usually. Why? Because this posture is what is required. It's called... He is Lord, I am not. We must recognize who he is. And we must ask ourselves if we are bowing gladly before him in the entirety of our hearts. You know, you don't run to somebody that you're ticked at. You don't bow for some, before somebody in false humility if you know they can see right through your heart. You bow before somebody who knew you know knows you and who still sent his son to do what you can't do for yourself. Without wagging his finger at you the whole rest of your life? Do you realize how patient he is with each of us? Why? Because he is right now transforming us. We are being transformed into the image of his son. Now, what about that list? If that's the desire of your heart, Which he does when he changes us. Then, when you read and study and meditate on scripture, you get God's revelation of himself and Christ. And in faith, you can cry out to him in prayer and adoration. And I said, cry out on purpose. honestly confessing to him our sin and our trouble and our battles and our concerns, and thankfully bringing our lives before him to humbly learn to trust him implicitly. Asking him first before anyone else about every need, desire, plan, and decision. because you know that ultimately, he's the one who has the answer. And he may use other means, but you go to him first. It means daily making him the center of our lives and learning to enjoy his presence and love. Isn't it weird that many people throw a label at a certain group of Christians who have that as the first sentence in one of the longest-lasting creeds in history to enjoy the God who saved you. It means treating brothers and sisters in Christ as the recipients of God's grace in Christ, that they really are. It means learning to worship him every day, but especially here in our corporate worship and treasuring this time. Learning to see God's work and grace all around us and being grateful for all of it. Do we see God's hand? And if we do, do we see the back of his hand? Or we think that's what it always is? trusting him when things or circumstances seem to cast doubt that he is faithful and loving him and his kingdom so much that what happens to our little kingdoms, they start paling in comparison because there is no comparison. The more we look at him, the more we will reflect his character and glory. The more we look at Him, the more we will reflect His character and glory. And this is called Christ-likeness. The idea of glorification, you see, is not just about the consummation of God's work of salvation at Christ's return, but rather also is an ongoing work within us which systematic theology designates as sanctification see you can't really categorize every detail when almighty god is the one who makes them all you can get close but there is glorification going on now which our usual word for it is sanctification but let's call it what it really is if he's transforming us into the image of his son now that is glorification we are reflecting his glory which is sanctification this verse assures us that the glory does not fade but rather increases and if we do look constantly into the face of christ we will reflect his character more and more We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The questions for each of us are really simple, then. Let's make it simple so we can digest it. Am I reflecting? But what's behind that question? Am I even looking? Let's pray. Oh, God, once again, you use your word. You even give us illustrations, so many illustrations that most of the time we don't even need new ones to show us what you have for us right now because of what you've done for us in christ your son and lord we get so confused sometimes about what we're here for and what your plan is for us and why not this and why this and if we just stop oh god and cry out to you and desire to know you many of these questions would be answered in ways that would really surprise us So as we do dig, as we do ask questions, as we do call out to you, as we do study in good faith, we pray that you would work on our hearts to remind us over and over and over and over again that we must look for Christ in the Word, how you reveal himself to us, and we must remember what he's done for us, not just to reiterate the facts, but to apply them to our own hearts. And that first means to recognize our need for a Savior. And then to recognize your hand in our lives today, even in times that we're griping about now and worried about, you are still on your throne, oh God. And you have purposes beyond our sight, and we're never going to see them. If we're not looking at you in this process, as we work out how to be wise, how to live, when to speak, what to do, we pray that you'd guide us as a church and as individuals within the church to be used by you in ways that probably we don't even expect. But maybe in ways that you've used believers down through history. And Lord, we've got to be all right with that whole spectrum. Can we? Oh, yes, oh, God, we know we can because we trust ourselves to you. You are the Lord, not us. And we pray that you would sincere that into our hearts in a way that's thankful and grateful that you've got us. And as we look at what we care about, from our kids, to our country, to our work, to what we enjoy. Oh, Lord, we've got to realize that, that you're the Lord over all of this. Nothing surprises you. Nothing is out of whack. And, Lord, you can use the worst of sinful hearts, to even accomplish your purposes in ways that we can't even dream of. So God, we reiterate again that we bow before you. We pray that you'd keep making our hearts more and more humble as we see the distinction and we also see the connections of how much you loved us and proved it. We ask that our trust would be great and that our message and our lives would have this boldness a bold humility before the god who saved us in his son we ask that in christ jesus name amen